Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To the sweet sounds of Kevin Bloody Wilson, it's Hump Day with Swanee and Friends, a special edition with Dane Swan and Samantha Richards. Hello. Hi, Ralph. How you going, man? <laughs> yes, good, thank you. We're, we're going to be joined by an award-winning author, one of the uh, best sports writers going around. He's got a fantastic podcast too, which is how I've really got to immerse myself in his work called Two Riders Slinging Yang called Jeff Perlman. He's just written a book called Three Ring Circus, Kobe Shackville and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty. Swanee, before I get Jeff on, you were in LA. You've spoken about this before, but just refresh and also so Jeff could hear. You were in LA when when uh, when Kobe passed. <clears throat> yeah, man, I was I was over there going on my way to the Super Bowl. So, um, yeah, it was a it was a crazy time. Um, I was at a, at a mate's bar in LA, and just the whole city it felt like to me just shut down. Um, I guess over here. I'm not sure. I'm not sure there'd be one person in Melbourne big enough to be able to, to be able to cause that kind of um, citywide sort of shutdown. Like obviously, things were still open, but the whole place just went into live mourning. It was incredible. Like I've seen nothing like, and obviously it was, it was tragic. And, and I've, maybe the way he he went, probably the tragic tragic circumstances of the way he actually died, and. You know his daughter and, and the other eight, I think it was. Um, when it was horrible, so I was it was like kind of in a movie. Like we're standing at a, I think it was Australia Day. Actually, we're at Australia Day party in um at EPLP, and then um sort of like a movie. Everyone sort of phone buzzed at the same time, and everyone sort of looked down and like and looked up and like just it was crazy. Like tears in the middle of like you know the bar, and it just. The whole city, we were there for another like two or three days, and the city just just completely shut down. People were still doing things and moving around, but like everywhere you went, it was just in mourning of Kobe. And I don't think I'm trying to think who would have that kind of like power here to do that for one of a better term. And I don't really know anyone. I think Kobe was such a huge, influential, and, and powerful and loved person in LA that um, it just. It just uh, sent shockwaves through the town, and it was horrible. So, um, yeah, it was a, a weird time to be in LA because it was just 
LA was broken, I guess. And then I come back after the Super Bowl, like a month later, to fly out. And I was there for a couple of days, and still, it was just all about Kobe and um, just a, just a tragedy to lose him the way LA did. So one more before we get Jeff in, because at the time you were away, so we got Georgie Parker, our mate, who's she's a, a hockey route champ. And remember, Sam, when when she was on the podcast, one of the things you guys were saying was in, in the midst of the, the tragedy was the, the wonderful thing that came through about the uh, the girl dad side of, uh, of, of that uh, that element. Wasn't it an incredible, I know, I mean, positive to come out of it? I, I know that, you know, there are so many movements that have happened over the last, uh, you know, couple of years from the Me Too <coughs> movement to, you know, the George Floyd movement, but also the girl dad. And we're all about equality in, you know, this day and age as well. But this one kind of happened... Um, you know, organically and turned a, a negative into such a positive. It was really beautiful to see, you know, not just Australian sports stars, but celebrities from all walks of life and all around the globe as well. It resonated, you know, whether you are a girl dad or a boy dad it is, you know, it resonates no matter what culture you come from. And I think that um, it was a really nice thing to see people really embracing that father-daughter relationship. It was, it was a really nice thing to come out of it. Well, well, Jeff Perlman joins us, and Jeff, we firstly thanks so much for being part of this thanks, uh, pod. But uh, but you also you what if people just glance and say, oh, you well, you've written a Kobe book, um, along with obviously Shaq and Phil. But your book was finished by the time this tragedy happened. Yeah, I actually, it's funny. I thought Dane's take was one of the I've heard, and you and you don't even live here. I thought that was a really good <laughs> understanding. Like it was, it was just really interesting. Um, I'm from New York. I've lived here about six years. I was done with the book, so I'd spent about two years reporting on it. It's basically about the 96 to 04 Lakers, so the three titles. And I was sitting in a coffee shop when I heard that Kobe died. And I feel like, even though I'd spent this time reporting on it, I didn't really have an understanding, in a way, until he died, of the impact he had on people. And, and it's really interesting because it wasn't, like I'm from New York. The biggest basketball star when I was a kid growing up was Patrick Ewing of the Knicks. And if Patrick Ewing died right now, you wouldn't have that outpouring. Like, it would just be sad that a basketball player died and he was great. This felt like it was more about, here's this guy, and he taught us about work. And he taught us about fighting through. And he taught us about, you know, hustling and busting your ass for a dream and just going after it at, at all costs. And that was, like, the number one takeaway, I thought, from people here is it wasn't just that he won five titles or he's a great Laker. It's that he works so ridiculously hard, and I can work hard too. I see what he did. I can do that too. I can work that hard too. I can control how hard I work. I think that's his number one impact and his number one legacy more than winning is actually the dog in this. That's a pretty freaking great legacy to have. Because yeah, I was watching you while Dane was saying that, you were nodding along. So uh, in a broader sense, what was it like, uh, you know, as you said, you now live in the in the area for the, for the town as a local? Um. It was, it was crushing. It felt like a, uh, it's funny. I was, I was, I remember when the Challenger space shuttle exploded and I was a kid and it was, I remember coming home from school and my brother David telling me what happened and the sense of just utter disbelief. Like it doesn't make sense. Like that doesn't, I lived in New York for nine 11. That was too big for this, but like something like the space shuttle crash. <laughs> and you're like, that doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't understand that. And I feel like when Kobe died, that was the number one reaction. It was like, that doesn't, I just saw him on Twitter five minutes ago. I just, I just saw him with this kid a day ago. I just saw him like, it didn't make sense. And 
I think a lot of people out here still speak of him in the present tense and have to catch themselves because it doesn't really, he was such a part of your life. He lived nearby. He was always going up and down the coast, taking his kids to a basketball tournament or appearing somewhere at a Laker game. And it just, I think people felt so connected to him and to his existence that it just didn't really make sense and still doesn't fully make sense that he does not exist anymore. Personally, you, you, you did the book. Uh, it's done and dusted. Um, my wife's writer, she's just actually just released the book. And, and you know the process. It takes months from the time it, you, you, you send it off to the time it actually hits the bookshelves. Uh, what, what actually was the mechanics with, with you? Well, I mean, the book was done. It took me two years. It was done. And it's actually, I've never had this happen. It's my ninth book. And I've never had a protagonist die ever. So I certainly didn't have one die after I completed a book. So the book was done, ready to go. I found out Kobe dies. I'm devastated like everyone else. And then I decided the one thing I, I thought was important, I added a three-page introduction. I didn't have, there wasn't that much I could add because it was already pretty much done. Explaining that the Kobe Bryant you're going to read in this book um, isn't the Kobe Bryant who died at age 41. That The Kobe Bryant from 1996 to 04 you know, he could be a pain in the ass and he was hyper competitive and he was you know, accused of sexually assaulting a woman in Colorado and teammates didn't really like him that much. And there's a lot of sort of negatives in that. What I, I really wanted to get across in the book, because I didn't want people to say, oh, here's another author just trying to make a buck out of a celebrity's death. Like that's the last thing you want people to think. I wanted people to understand that the Kobe Bryant you're reading about, it's developmental. Like those years when he was 20, 21, 22. That was the developmental years of Kobe Bryant to become the person he was at 41. And I really think, I truly believe that the person he died, the person who died was a really likable, embraceable, <clears throat> someone whose best years were in front of him. I really do. I think he came, he came to understand that beating the Nuggets uh, or the Hornets or whoever, it's important when you're doing it, but there are more important things in life. And I just think as he got older and as he had the kids, we talked about the four, you know, being a dad of four girls. I just think he came to realize there were more important things and he was actually a much more likable person. To have. Do you think he would have changed if he had known that early on? Or do you think that, that brashness and aggressiveness and the, the arsehole I guess, for want of a better term, would have made him who he was? Or do you think if he had have had those daughters earlier, do you think he would have mellowed in his basketball career? Or do you think he always would have been that aggressive and like, you know, punching on with teammates at training and just, you know, you, you see the, the vision of him like barking it his teammates during pickup game and stuff like that. Do you think he would have always been like that was the competitiveness inside him? Or do you think if he had the daughters 10 years earlier and he would have mellowed a bit and would have changed his basketball career or personality? That's a great question. I actually, um, I thought about that a lot. I actually think when he really started to change, and I don't know if you've seen this in your own career with teammates and such, is when he, so he got hurt late in his career and then he just started aging, you know, and you start aging and you can't quite do the things you used to be able to do. And he wasn't, he was no longer the quickest. He was no longer the strongest. He wasn't as good on defense. He couldn't dunk nearly as explosively as he once did. And I actually think for athletes, um, especially for superstar athletes, that's a really important time period in, in, in your career because you start to see your own athletic mortality and you become comfortable with it. And you realize you're not going to dominate every night. You're not going to be the best every night. And you get by with savvy and hard work and elbow grease. And I really think that was the moment. He became a much better teammate and a much more likable NBA player when he became one where you could start to see the end. 
And so I'm not sure if the daughters would have changed him as much as yeah. his own NBA sort of career coming to an end. Yeah. Okay. Just as a, as a sports fan, one of the things I love reading about and knowing about it are people with, with uh, dynamic duos, if you like, you know, two, two great players in, in over here in the AFL in the, in the 80s, there was Dermot Burton and Jason Dunsell, which will mean nothing to you. In cricket, we had Shane Warne and Glenn McGrath. Uh, Dane and uh, and another Collingwood champion, Scott Pendlebury, a different type of fellas, and they don't they aren't necessarily best friends, but they they get on, uh, or they're different personalities, and but they're still mates. Whereas the, one of the unique dynamics, and no doubt something that drove you into this book, was that these guys, Kobe and Shaq, genuinely hated each other at times. Yeah, well, I mean, you know what I always compare it to? I don't know. So uh, back in the eighties, there's a music group called Hall and Oates. Do you guys know Hall and Oates? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. And, yeah, 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 right. and um, I grew up a big Hall and Oates fan. And they still perform. They still perform. And they tour. And they show up and they don't really talk to each other. They're certainly not going out to dinner. But they put on a really good show. And then they leave, you know, and they come back the next day. And they put on a good show and then they leave. And they, you know, maybe it's high by, but that's about it. I just don't think, again, Dane, maybe you disagree with me. I think the myth that team chemistry needs to be blah, 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 blah. Like, Shaq and Kobe were two of the four best players in the NBA at the same time, playing with the best coach in the NBA, Phil Jackson. I think that's enough. And I just think you can hate each other, you can dislike each other, but as long as on the court you play together and you play well together, I just think the whole thing's a little overrated. And I just think at the end of the day, they didn't always hate each other. They certainly didn't really like each other. Um, but they were able to, their skill set were so at such a high level it just wasn't as important as you would think. I don't know. Maybe you disagree, Dane. No, absolutely. I think, especially maybe at training, like you said, at training or having lunch in the lunchroom and stuff, like you might not sit together and talk with each other and that. But if you're a professional athlete and you're as competitive as well as them two were and you are in our league, um, once you get out to training or on game day, like you're not running around going, well, I don't like him, so I'm not going to give him the ball. Like you just, you've got a common goal to win a, a championship, so you do anything it takes to win. So yeah, I don't believe that um, you have to be best friends with everyone on the field. Absolutely not, because um, you're not. Especially in outlaw in the NBA, there's five blocks on a court. So usually LeBron James goes to a team. You're gonna be good and usually go to a um, a championship or go into the finals. So you have to work around their personality and just have to deal with it because of how how good they are. But with us. Um, there's eight, there's 36 on a field at once, 18 on, you know, 18 on one team. So you're not necessarily going to like everyone you play with. There's 45 blokes on your list. So you know, if you throw yourself with 45 other, you know, aggressive, um, you know, testosterone-filled males, you're going to have head clashes. You're going to clash and butt heads with people. It's just the way it is. So you have to be professional enough just to overcome. All right, all right, I'm never going to go out for dinner with him, but he's going to get help me get to where I want to be on a professional level. So we're going to work together. So, so yeah, oh, I kind of agree. Wait, I just want to say, I saw something you said. I was looking this up. Oh, God. That you said about uh, about Scott, Scott Collingwood, where you said, Scott found out what worked for him. Mine was probably a little different than his, but if I had to train and work like him, who's to say I would have done what I'd done? And if Scott had trained the way I did, who knows? He might be, be the player he is today. And I feel like Shaq and Kobe... That's exact. Like Shaq would get a lot of grief because he would spend a lot of time at home in the off season, in a pool, eating a cheeseburger, smoking a cigar, and Kobe yeah. would be shooting free throws. But 
I don't think Shaq could have been that guy. And I don't think Kobe could have been that guy. And sometimes what works for you isn't going to work for the other guy. And that's, that is completely fine. Sometimes that's just the way it goes. Yeah, exactly. And like, for me, I was a bit more relaxed and I only what I love. And I was just compa- on game day, I was just com- the most competitive person there was. I wanted to be the best player on the ground every time I stepped on it. But I, I wasn't, I didn't eat, sleep and breathe football every single moment of my life because, and I said that, I was like, if I had have trained with some of the guys like Pendles who just, that was absolutely everything I trained, you know, all the time, um, super professional. I, I could have burned out in four years and went, you know what, Fuck, this isn't for me. Like, it's just, I can't handle the, how much it takes to, to what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Where for me, I was relaxed. I just dealt with what came away. And when I stepped onto the ground, <clears throat> that's when I, you know, was my competitive streak come out. So definitely you got to find out what works for you. And that worked for me, not thinking about football 24 hours a day, taking a break from it and focusing on other things. Then once I stepped into the footy club, all right, now it's time to work. So definitely it takes all types because we're all different. And I think that's a job of being a very good coach. As you know, you obviously had the um, right about Phil Jackson, where you got to learn what, gets the best out of people. Some people need to be yelled at. Some people need to be cuddled. Some people need to be left alone. Some people need to be micromanaged to make sure they get the best out of themselves. So that's it's all about figuring out what is best for the individual, which then helps the team obviously achieve what they want to achieve. Yep. My question to you was going to be around the coach's influence. When you've got two big personalities like that on the team, but both are equally as important to getting you that championship, how important is that coach's role in kind of manoeuvring those two superstars and making sure they both show up from their, you know, they're both different backgrounds and both doing their job? Is is the, the coach's influence almost more important in a team like that, would you say, to get the job done? Um, but I, the one thing I would say is um, I think what you need and what the Lakers had was a really, really good clubhouse locker room where you have a lot of veterans who, you know, like when Shaq and Kobe <laughs> came to the Lakers in 96, they were a very young team. And when you have a bunch of young guys around an environment where players are, are at each other, there's going to be a tendency for the young players to either, all right, I need to take a side. I need to be with this guy. I need to be with that guy. And then there's a lot of gossip because younger players tend to gossip more than older players and it becomes this thing. And when Phil Jackson came along, the Lakers locker room was one of the best in the NBA. And they had guys like Rick Fox and Robert Ory and Brian Shaw and Horace Grant. And they were just veterans and they could control what was going on. And they weren't everly, they weren't easily influenced by Shaq and Kobe fighting with each other. It was more like they would just shrug it off and be like, oh, this again, you know, enough. So Phil Jackson wouldn't have to, sh- you know, shove his hand in every day and say, stop it. Because he had these veterans who were able to control it and they weren't overly influenced by it. I also would like to ask Samantha, what happened to your hands? <laughs> um, for the listeners have heard this a million times, I had um, some reconstructive surgery on some ligaments in my wrist. So um, a couple of weeks post-surgery. I feel like doing a handstand. She needs a better story. You know, I was doing a handstand, yeah. Which at 33, I should probably be Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) I do need a better story. But that 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 brings us though, Jeff. To uh, you, you're saying Phil Jackson would be the type who would ask Samantha what how she's done her hand, and because when when you interviewed him, and and go as long as you like about this, you had an amazing experience uh, interviewing him in his hometown. It was cool. So I um. I asked the owner of the Lakers is Jeannie Buss, and I know her a little bit. And I asked her, 
I said, uh, how would you get Phil Jackson? And she said, well, let me email him for you. Cause they used to date and she was the owner of Lakers and the whole thing. So she said, all right, you, Phil said you can email him. And I emailed him and he said, well, when do you want to talk? And he met on the phone and I said, is there any way I can come out to Montana? He goes, I guess so. And, uh, so I fly out to Montana, which isn't that far from here, a couple hour flight. And I meet him at a coffee shop. And uh, the first thing I say to him is I say, uh, hey, coach, I just want to thank you for, uh, for taking the time. And he goes, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for Jeannie. And I was like, oh, crap, this is not going to be good. So I figured it'll be an hour at a coffee shop in Montana. And he's like, I don't know. I thought we'd drive. I'd take you for a drive around the lake, Flathead Lake. I was like, all right. It's like a three-hour drive. He's like, I thought we'd stop for lunch. You want to get lunch? Okay. He's like, I don't know. You want to come back to my house? You want to just come back to my house? <laughs> okay. We're sitting on the we're sitting on his patio and rocking chair. It's now like five hours into our you know our endeavor. Then he's like, yeah, I'm gonna take a nap. Like, you want to get dinner later? I was like, okay. So <laughs> I ended up with like eight hours of Phil Jackson, and it was um he was great. You know, he's it's funny like he's not. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I've interviewed them. I would say the majority of coaches I've interviewed are a certain type, which is a lot of coach speak, you know, a lot of cliches. Mm. They're very into talking about basketball. Not all, but a lot. And he was just, he was all about the history of Montana and Native Americans, and this is where I grew up, and here's how. You know, it was like, if I spent, you know, of those eight hours, I would say an hour and a half was basketball. The rest was, what does your wife do for a living? Oh, how about this? What's the last movie you saw? You know, he was very curious and very inquisitive and very engaging, and it made me like him a lot, and I could see why players like playing for him. Well, so what made Phil Jackson a great coach? Because some would argue, well, he had Jordan, and then he had Kobe and Shaq, so, he, so he's won... 11 titles, but you've had the. Well, I'll ask you who you think the best basketballer is ever before we go. But you've had Jordan, who 90% of the world probably say he's the best ever. And then you've got Kobe and Shaq, who you could argue are the best combo ever. So, what was he? Was it just dumb luck that he just fell into some of the greatest teams of all time? Or did he have a certain system to help them or a bit of both? Or Well, I always think it's a weird criticism when people say, um, Oh, he had great players because name a championship team that hasn't had great players. <laughs> They're like, yep. I mean, seriously, name a championship team that had bad players. And I can, you know, it's like, wow, he had great players. What a revelation. But I, I do think a lot of teams with great players don't win. 
I mean, look at here in the NBA, look at the Houston Rockets the last bunch of years. Like they haven't won. They had great they're players. Yeah. Yeah. And they're done now. And that didn't work. And there's a lot of examples of teams that had great players. I was in New York when the Knicks added Carmelo Anthony and he was supposed to be this missing piece and mm-hmm. couldn't do it. So I think, yes, he had great players. There's no doubt about it. Um, his chief assistant coach, Tex Winner, was the architect of the triangle offense. And Phil Jackson was smart enough to know this would work very well and that it was an offense was going to work. Um, and also, again, I think like too many coaches are babysitters. Like too many coaches think they need to be babysitters and they need to put their finger on everything. And they need to direct everything and they need credit with everything. He was not like that. He was, I'm going to look a lot of timeouts. He would just sit there and he'd let the players figure it out. A lot of half times, he would say very little and walk off and let them figure it out. He just knew, like, you're not going to win at that level being a college coach. That these are professionals, they're adults, they're men who have done this a long time. So I just think he was really good. And yes, he he did have great players. I don't think he would have won a championship with the, you know, 1992 New Jersey Nets. I don't think anyone would have. I think he was a great coach. It's funny you Uh, say that, Jeff, because you just reminded me, Swanee, You've often spoken about, and, and you wouldn't know, Jeff, but Dane's premiership coach is Mick Moldhouse, who coached three premierships and I think and, and has, in fact, coached more games than anyone else in the history of AFL. And Mick, you, Swanee, you pretty much said often that Mick found that happy medium of just letting you do what was best for you. Yeah, I think there's guys between results-driven coaching and process-driven coach where Mick, um, especially for the core senior older blokes, sort of understood that they knew their bodies and they knew what they needed to get out of themselves game day. So um, that he'd let you sort of not do what you want, but give you a bit of leeway during the week and game day just to be able to do what you felt was needed to help the side win where, yeah, some coaches where they micromanage everything. It's all about process and everyone has to do everything together right. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Give yourself the best um, opportunity to win on the weekend now. I'm not sure. Um, I preferred mixed style where I like to be left to my own devices and just get myself ready for the game and then obviously rip into it. But, um, yeah, it takes all types. And um, I think even Bucks early on, our coach now, uh, the Collingwood coach now, I think he would tell you he micromanaged far too much early in his coaching career and that's why they fell apart. Assistant coaches were scared to speak and scared to give game plans, scared to come over the top and micromanage everything. So... You certainly, I think, you certainly need to find a happy medium and let players and coaches figure out problems for themselves before they step in and do what they what they want. Um, Jeff, I was going to ask about you said you had because you had so much. Uh, like Phil, give you you emailed Phil Jackson um, over there. The media probably has a over here um, probably not as close a um, relationship as I assume you did with, with Phil or with, with Jeannie. Um, how are you viewed over there and like the access you get to the players? Because there's not, would you say, Ralph, you wouldn't say there's the access and that's probably not great here. Like we, you're kind of viewed as enemies, I guess, like because you, you write bad stories and like the, the players probably don't want, don't like the media unless you're playing well, obviously, and write nice things about them. But, you know, you can be viewed, you know, as enemies where I know is, over there are you viewed as, someone who can who can help the team or do they, you still get as much sort of negative feedback coming your way as well as the, the positive? And how do you get close with a guy like Phil Jackson or Jeannie Buck? That's a great question. So um, I would say, number one, the thing that's changed a lot. So I first started covering sports 
I got to Sports Illustrated, the magazine, in, in 1996, and I was a baseball writer, right? And I would say what has changed drastically, drastically, is the impact social media has had on athletes and the need to even deal with reporters. Because it now it has become more of why do I need to spend an hour with you when I can just put what I'm feeling out on Twitter or Instagram or, you know, whatever. So I think that's gone really hard, like really, really hard. I think the the NBA in particular has gotten a lot. They're much more guarded about their players. It used to be, I'm not kidding. When I was a writer at Sports Illustrated, early 2000s, if I wanted to go do a story on Shaquille O'Neal when he was playing for the Lakers. I would call up the Lakers. I'd say, yeah, I'm going to come out on Thursday. Do you think I can get some time with Shaq? Yeah, no problem. Can I get some time with Allen Iverson? No problem. And you would get the time you needed. Nowadays, you call the team, they're going to tell you probably call the agent. You're going to call the agent. They're going to know, want to know what the story is. They might even say, they might even say, I'm not going to let you do anything unless you can guarantee me you put in that he has a deal with Puma or Adidas. Uh, you know, like it's gone crazy. <laughs> the, the advantage I have of writing books is I come in from more of a nostalgia standpoint. Like Shaq isn't playing anymore. Phil isn't playing anymore. So it's more of I want to write about what you were. And I think a lot of these people really like the idea of books as far as sort of cementing a legacy and solidifying a legacy and writing about it that way. But if I were to show up tomorrow in Brooklyn and say, hey, Kevin Durant, can I talk to you for an hour? You'd be like, yeah, no. Yeah, I don't think so. It would be much harder, much harder. Yeah. So it's funny what you say, Jeff, and I'll just, just to give, sorry, Sam, just to okay. give you some context. The, I, I worked on the biggest TV show uh, over here, which was the footy show, and it was actually coincidentally the 1996 when I went there. It was the third year that you said you started Sports Illustrated. <clears throat> and, and what made it was the current footballers would come on, and they were really raw. They didn't have media training. It was before media training taught them what not to say, and it became a primetime TV phenomenon. Anyway, it ran its race, but in recent years, the new uh, phenomenon has been a show called The Front Bar, and they tap into the nostalgia element. They get the old players on, they tell all these great stories, they get get old vision, and it's working working really well. So really, the nostalgia element means that players come in, or ex-players in this case, come in unguarded and say whatever they want. Well, I just, I just want to say, I really think that um, sports are a lot like music or food or, you know, when like... I don't know you're eating somewhere and you smell maybe a sauce that reminds you of being at your grandma's house when you were eight years old, or you see a TV show from 1972 and you're like, oh, I remember, whatever, you know, like sports has that power. I think it's a little, people don't talk about it enough, but we just, you, you see an old game or you hear your favorite athlete from when you were a kid. Like the reason, I don't know how big the last dance was over there. Is that a, huge, is that a huge, huge massive, yeah. Me, I, I swear to God, I almost felt like crying because it reminded me how great Michael Jordan was. And like, just yeah. what, I didn't like it. I found him unlikable as, he, as a person. Like I, th- I just thought he was arrogant, but like watching him play, I was like, man, that was such a great, it was just a great time period and just this magical moment. And it really did it for me. So I love the power of nostalgia in sports. Yeah. See, you, see the best, you see the best you've seen? I'm sorry. Jordan? Yeah. Yeah, I would say, I mean, LeBron's <laughs> amazing. But Jordan wasn't shopping. Jordan wasn't team shopping. That's the one thing I will say. Like, yeah. So LeBron, Jordan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar are probably the big three for me. What about in the baseball? You, you know, baseball and football and NFL. Is, is Trout the best? Because I yeah. say that, but he hasn't, he hasn't done anything. Nobody cares anymore. Nobody yeah. cares about baseball anymore. He's totally died. But Trout is the best player in baseball. Him and probably Bryce Harper. Um, yeah. And football, I would say, 
Patrick Mahomes. Uh, what about the best you've seen? What about the goats in the three? If you had to say, it? I would say the best football player I've ever seen was Walter Payton, Chicago yeah. Bears running back. Um, I would say the best baseball player I've ever seen was Ken Griffey Jr. played for the Seattle Mariners. Yeah. Yep. And the and Jordan. And Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Sam? I was going to just have a, a different take on, on what you said about accessibility with social media. Um, over here, pre-COVID, I used to do a fair bit of like live shows with athletes. Um, and I feel like from my perspective, social media on Australian athletes has had a, a, a reverse effect. I feel like, you know, the stars of the 80s and the 90s weren't very accessible because you couldn't get an insight into their life unless someone like yourself did a, a piece on them or there was a, you know, a, a short docuseries on, you know, late at night or, you know, if you went to the games, you got these signatures and they were so exclusive because they were so hard to get hold of. Whereas these days, I feel like clubs are making their players into more public figures using social media. They're more accessible. You can tweet them and they tweet you back. Dane, not always nice things. But it's a lot more easier to access these people. So my job has become a little bit easier because you can get personal insights into these players through following them on social media, whereas previously you'd have to sit down with them, you know, for hours on end and, and do a full interview to, to find out about their upbringing and their favourite coach and, you know, who the, who and they don't really get along with. Whereas nowadays they're more open about that. They share it on social media and clubs have kind of made a thing out of it and are using them, making superstars, if that makes sense, using social media. So yeah. I had a different take yeah. on it. I actually, I don't, I totally understand what you're saying. And I will say social media has made it from my vantage point, um, a million times easier to track people down, to yeah. find people. Now you can just DM someone on Twitter and be like, or even just tweet at someone and be like, Hey, can you follow me for a minute so I can ask you a quick question? And it's a la- it's eliminated many layers of annoyance. Mm-hmm. So in that way, it's been great. So, you know, mm-hmm. good and bad. Mm-hmm. Jeff, I really want to get two greatest hit stories from this book that uh, that uh, I've just loved. So I'll, I'll set one up here, and you'll know where I'm going from. But to, to okay. Dane, has Dane has anyone knocked on your door for an interview, or what's the most amazing time? Or, or I think uh, the Jewish word uh, Jeff would be chutzpah. Uh, right. The most most amount of cheek anyone's used uh, coming up to you for an interview out of, out of nowhere. Just off the top of your head. Uh, yeah, well, I, I realised that, Ralph. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ah, um, oh, sure. I guess I'm not going to have a story as good as Jeff, but um, oh, nothing really exciting. No one's jumped out behind a bush or anything like that. So, if I and I've been fighting, I was fighting in a car once, and then I um I sat at uh I sat in the in the middle of the light in the middle of the um intersection about to turn right, and then I waited till the light went red, and then I went. Um, and then they couldn't follow me because they couldn't, they couldn't nudge out. And then they rang my manager. My manager rang me and they said, we've just filmed Dane running a red light. If he hasn't come back and do this, if he, if he, has, if he hasn't come back and do this, come back and talk to us, we're going to release the footage. And I was like, uh, well, they can get fucked. I'll just call off the three points. But uh, that's the first thing. But just Dane's yeah, Dane's wife was just getting a bit shaky there. But, uh, Jeff, uh, you had to knock on a door no, and make it, make, it, make it real scary for yourself. Well, there was a guy in the uh, Portland – well, there was a guy in the Lakers in 2000, 2001 named uh, J.R. Ryder. And he had been a uh, he'd been a really good player with Portland. By the time he got to the Lakers, he was kind of a bench guy. And um, 
a little bit erratic. He uh, he threatened to kill a couple of reporters. You know, did stuff like that. Like not the best. So I couldn't find Jay right. Huh? Did you believe him? Is he, is he, was he the kind of player where you go, well, actually, he actually might kill us, or is it just a throwaway line? Or... He, so the line he would use on, he used to two writers is he said, I know where your family lives. <laughs> <laughs> and he was from a pretty tough background. He was from a really tough background. So um, yeah. I'm, work, I'm working on this book, and I don't have, um, I have his address, but I don't have a phone number. And I really want to talk to him. And he lives in Arizona, and one day I'm in Arizona. So I decide I'm going to drive by his house and just knock on the door. So I drive up to his house, and there it is. I'm there pretty early, like 9.30 in the morning. I don't know why I was there so early, but I knock on the door. I ring the doorbell, and a little kid answers, and I'm like, hey, I'm looking for J.R. Ryder. He goes, hold on. And he closes the door. Then a woman comes. She goes, uh, I'm like, hey, my name's Jeff Perlman. I'm a writer. I'm looking for J.R. Ryder. Hold on one second. She closes the door. <laughs> then I hear an adult male and an adult woman yelling at each other. What the and uh, the door opens and there's J.R. Ryder. And he's definitely not happy to see me. And he's like, uh, can I curse on this show or no? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. It's encouraged. I go, uh, he goes, uh, who the fuck are you? And I'm like, hey, my name's Jeff Perlman. I'm a writer for, uh, I'm a writer and I'm working on a book. And I had one of my books with me. And he goes, nah, no, bro. No, 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 no. No, he's like, no, you don't, no, fucking no, man, you don't just fucking, fucking just pull. Then he opens the door and he comes out. He's big, fucking man, no, 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 you don't just, you just fucking drive up here. Are you fucking kidding me? Who the fuck? And then he goes, what's that book you have? And I go, oh, it's a book I wrote about football. He goes, so what are you writing about? And I'm like, uh, I'm doing a book about the Shackoby Lakers. All right, man, I'll talk to you. What do you want to know? <laughs> two hours. Two hours. <laughs> That's awesome. And and a, a real lovely one to finish with um, about the uh, the big fellow Shaquille O'Neal. He's just a naturally generous person, and you got to see it, and you knew he just wasn't putting it on. Oh yeah, he. Um, I flew down to Atlanta to interview. I think he's the best superstar teammate I've ever written about, as far as kindness to other teammates. And um, I was sitting there interviewing him in Atlanta in the studio before he was going to go on TV. One thing I'll say about him that was amazing is he had a he had a can of soda in his hand and his hand is so ridiculously enormous. It looked like it was a mini <laughs> can of soda. It was so ridiculous. And at one point I'm interviewing him and his, uh, someone, someone FaceTimes him and he goes to me, he goes like, Hey, excuse me. And it's his, uh, his daughter. And he kind of excuses himself and he's like, yeah. And she's like, yeah, daddy. I don't know if you remember the girl I went to school with, but her mom died today. It's really sad. And Shaq goes, listen, I, I, <clears throat> Make sure uh, I'm paying for the funeral. Um, make sure none of the bills go to them. All the bills go to me. She's like, all right, daddy, thank you so much. Click. What were you talking about? And there was like this moment, just this moment of, I mean, the number of times people told me, players from the Lakers, about Shaq offering to pay for their parents' funeral, Shaq buying them clothing, Shaq taking them out for dinner. There was one guy on the team named Mark Madsen, who was a Mormon forward, and um, he shows up. And whenever they would fly, Shaq would sit next to him. Whenever a flight attendant would walk by, Shaq would go, hey, are you Mormon by any chance? And she'd be like, no, why? And he'd be like, don't worry about it. He was always trying to set Mark Madsen up with Mormon weight. <laughs> <laughs> he was just that guy. And he's just, just a, a very unique human being. Oh, that's cool. super. 
Mate, we, we really appreciate you giving us some yeah. of your time. It's the book's Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaqville, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty. I think it comes out on Amazon next week, before Christmas over here. Um, and I know this because it took me two months to get your football for a buck book, which uh, after you, after the time you released it, uh, the Donald Trump League, if you like, the USFL. And, uh, and of course, the weekly podcast you do, Two Riders Slinging Yang, is just enormous and uh, really love the passion that you put across to it. Oh, thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for Thank you for your time. Thank you. Good stuff. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.